Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. The Fed wants it. Treasury wants it. Congress wants it. The White House wants it. It's a priority that has been set by the highest levels of the administration that we need to have dollar stablecoin regulation in the United States. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor of Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the September 12th, 2023 episode of Unchained. The game has changed. The Google Cloud Oracle, built for Layer 0, is now securing every Layer 0 message by default. Their custom end-to-end solution sets itself up to bring its world-class security to Web3 and establish itself as the HTTPS within Layer 0 messaging. Visit LayerZero.network to learn more. Arbitrum's leading Layer 2 scaling solutions can provide you with lightning-fast transactions at a fraction of the cost, all while ensuring security rooted on Ethereum. Arbitrum's newest addition, Orbit, enables you to build your own tailor-made Layer 3. Visit Arbitrum.io today. Toku makes implementing global token compensation and incentive awards simple. With Toku, you get unmatched legal and tax tech support to grant and administer your global team's tokens. Make it simple today with Toku. Buy, trade, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Today's guest is Jeremy Allaire, co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Circle. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you, Laura. It's, it's really great to be back on the show and see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's been a while. Um, not uh, you know out of any desire to not talk to you because Circle has been making waves, and one of the most recent bits of news is that you've dissolved the Center Consortium that was managing the development of USDC, and Coinbase now has taken a stake in Circle. What was the impetus behind it, these moves? Yeah, um, it's it's really exciting. I mean, there there are a few pieces to this. I think the first is, you know, if you if you go back uh, a number of years, um, you know, we we sort of invented uh, USDC and and kind of debuted it to the world, um, you know, just over five years ago. And you know, when we when we created USDC, yeah, you know, we had a, a vision for like what a protocol could be for fiat tokens, is what we called them. They weren't called stable coins mm-hmm. really broadly then, but um, some people did. But that that could work you know, on blockchains and, and that you could build something that would allow for a kind of interoperable value exchange, um, you know, b- built on, on, uh, on these open networks. And so we had a, we had a big set of ideas and we really thought about these kinds of protocols as, as things that would benefit from sort of having standards around them. And it was really important to us when we got started that, um, we could kind of develop those standards together with other industry leaders. 
and kind of have you know a shared a sort of shared stake in the success of a protocol like USDC. And and so we were very fortunate in 2018 um, to forge a partnership with Coinbase. It was a, a really important strategic partnership for both firms um, to drive USDC in the market. And as part of that, you know, Circle was sort of issuing USDC. It was sort of we're the regulated electronic money transmission firm and and issuing it. But we had a, we had a lot of ideas for how that could evolve over time. But also, most importantly, while there were regulations around like what money transmission was and and how a firm like Circle needed to operate, there were a lot of things about stablecoins in particular that you know there weren't really regulations around, like how to hold the reserves, um, how to manage the security of of of, of the network itself. You know, all these kind of governance issues in a sense that were needed and how to deal with, you know, law enforcement, uh, interactions and other things. And so we created Center Consortium with this idea of kind of creating self governance around a stable coin and, um, and published more and more of the policies of that and so on. Now, what's happened in five years, a lot of things have happened. So one is, um, you know, USDC went from nothing to being one of the most important digital currencies and, and digital assets in the world today. It went from you know, very small to being a you know a, a billion dollar plus uh, you know revenue stream uh, business today, but also most critically is you know really starting a few years ago, governments sort of said, well, we're actually going to govern this. <laughs> like we see stable coins as as part of the what I refer to as the prudential regulatory framework, meaning the regulatory framework that the the, the central banks and and the, and the major regulators of payment systems wanted to have rules around. And that was really key. And so kind of coming back to the heart of your question, which is as governance goes from kind of a, a self-governance model to a government governance, governance model, the kind of nature of this changed. And so, you know, working together with Coinbase, we looked at, you know, how do we, you know, how, how do we make sure that Circle can continue to build and innovate and do what we need to do uh, as the issuer and operator of this and do it in a way that is responsive to the regulations that are emerging all around the world on stablecoins and stablecoin issuers and, and make sure we can follow those guidelines uh, now that there are rules that are kind of out there. Um, and also, you know, uh, have really con- have continue to have really strong aligned economic incentives uh, to make this, you know, as as widely successful as possible. And so a mixture of things there in terms of you know, them taking a stake in Circle, Circle kind of taking full-on ownership over all of the the development operations USDC, but also making sure that this can work in the context of all these new stablecoin laws that are popping up around the world. Yeah, you know, it's funny because when I saw the news, it sort of felt like the consortium model was sort of the crypto way of doing things. And that was appropriate for a time when, yeah, USDC was smaller. This was something that was really kind of more focused on the crypto community. But of course, now the conversation has just changed so much. And we have like regulators and lawmakers that are really (laughs) looking at this space, you know, there's probably going to be legislation about it. And so, you know, it felt like, oh, they're moving to a model that can fit into existing regulations. Yeah, big time. 
Yeah, I mean, something else uh, that was interesting, which I'm sure you saw, is that the the news of this arrangement caused some speculation that Circle was setting itself up to be acquired by Coinbase. And I was wondering, as the CEO of Circle, which direction are you working toward uh, when you're steering Circle to going public or to an acquisition by another company such as Coinbase? Right. Right. We're definitely on the path to be an independent public company. We've had the benefit of having a number of strategic investors in the company over the years. You know, more, more recently, BlackRock took a, a, a you know, minority stake in the company as part of a broader strategic partnership between the firms. That was last year. Having a stake in a company can create really good product and value alignment, and that's really key. Um, and it's important. I want to make sure that you know, Coinbase has a stake in our long-term success in addition to being able to make money from USDC. Um, that, that I think that's like a, a win-win. Um, but, you know, as a company, just to be clear, like it's our 10 year anniversary. So it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's a fun year for us. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and you know, I, I, I say this often, but you know, when, uh, when we founded the company 10 years ago, um, you know, I made it very clear to my investors and employees that, you know, this is a multi-decade journey to really realize the vision of the company. And, you know, when you when you think about kind of where we are today, right? Um, there's whatever a uh, hundred and some billion uh, stable coins in circulation. Um, you know, yes, there's a lot of volume of transactions that are happening, but um, this is like barely begun to penetrate the financial system. And so, the, there's just an enormous amount ahead, and a general purpose, you know, protocol and utility for dollars on the internet. It has an, an there's an enormous market to to go after there, um, not just for the movement of money, but actually just the having money represented and stored in this kind of form. You know, there's 25 trillion dollars of uh, of electronic dollars in the world across the different kind of formats of that, and and so we're we're really quite small. So and and frankly, like the utility of programmable money and the utility of uh, of a, a, a frictionless medium of exchange that becomes possible like this, we're like just beginning to see the the value of that. And so, like I would just say for for everyone out there, like Circle still, even though we're doing a lot of, of revenue and very profitable, we're an early stage company as far as I'm concerned. I I, I view Circle as an early stage company right now, um, and I think when I think about what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to build, it's a multi-decade kind of strategy. And, and I think um, I'm excited to see that through and, and really to do that as a, as a, I, you know, I, I hope uh, a very strong, you know, independent publicly traded company. Well, one of the steps that's definitely going to take you out of the early stage development is that you recently announced that the largest e-commerce and payments firm in Latin America, Mercado Libre, announced that it's going to adopt USDC. So tell us a little bit about that partnership and what impact you think it'll have on Circle. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very exciting. It's a tremendous firm that has you know paved the way for kind of modern commerce, and, and they play a really big role in in payments as well in, in Latin America. And it's part of a broader theme that we're seeing um, around, you know, the, the growth in sort of demand for digital dollars um, and, and demand for using those in, in markets where maybe local currencies aren't, aren't as exciting. And, and Latin America is definitely one of those places. But I think very specifically, um, you know, the first phases of this 
are going live, you know, in in specific countries in Latin America. You know, ultimately, we we envision that this will be very broadly, you know, rolled out. But I think it's it's important as as we look at sort of indicators of where we are in the adoption of of stablecoins that. This is going from, oh, this is just used as something to trade on DeFi, or this is just, you know, used uh, to, for arbitrage traders or whatever, you know, to speculation. Yeah, speculation to, <laughs> no, actually, this is, uh, this is something that is fundamentally providing, you know, dollar store of value to people who need it, providing a very efficient cross border payment mechanism for people who need it. And these are major mainstream companies that serve hundreds of millions of users. So, you know, Mercado Libre has, I believe, around 200 million uh, customers. Uh, and that's tremendous. And so we think about, you know, how do we grow the TAM of wallets that can transact in USDC? Um, and, you know, Coinbase has over 100 million wallets that can transact in USDC. These kinds of partnerships really grow that. And there are all, you know, many, many, you know, wallets that people use. I think MetaMask has 30 million active, you know, users and they can all transact in USDC. And so as we see more and more wallets, these traditional, you know, kind of fintech commerce firms, digital wallets companies, and then all the new people building, you know, the next account abstraction, uh, smart account wallet, uh, that's going to be the killer app for, for making all this usable. Like as, as those things get built, it just creates more and more um, avenues for people to to use USDC. Yeah, and I want to talk about those tech developments. But before we move on, I just wanted to ask for the Mercado Libre. Um, so obviously, like, let's say I'm in Chile and I, you know, I'm going to buy something uh, on Mercado Libre. It would show me the Chilean peso price. But then in addition, would it have this price in USDC? Or is because like, is the, the consumer also recognizing that they're, their price could be denominated in dollars. Is that how that will work? I don't actually have the like the details of the user experience uh, exactly how that is is set up um, in, in front of me. Um, what I what I do know is that they have a lot of demand from their customers to hold and transact in dollars, and so this is really a a really powerful way to move more of the store of value. That exists for their customers into into digital dollars, and then obviously once you once you have those, the usefulness of them uh, both within their own platform, but the power of all of this, and the reason why stablecoins are interesting in some ways in the first place, and USDC specifically, is because of the reach, because of the interoperability. Like I want to I want to live in a world where I've got a digital wallet and I'm in the Philippines and I know someone in Brazil and I know someone wherever. And like, that's the power of crypto, right? Open networks uh, that you can transact over directly, peer to peer, interoperably. I mean, that's really the power. And so, um, you know, kind of, you know, I, I think that's ultimately the, the big unlock uh, that, that comes from uh, a partnership with Circle like this. And you've tweeted that 70% of USDC usage is from out of the US. Is it is that one of the drivers that people simply want to keep their savings in US in uh, US dollar denominated currency or you know what's driving that? Yeah. Well, it's a few things. I think the first is just the whole blockchain ecosystem if you think about it is highly global, right? We 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 know this just in general. Just like there's just huge amounts of the activity are in markets all over the world. And so 
to the degree that you need, you know, a trusted, redeemable digital dollar, right? USDC is a great option. And so it sort of follows the overall growth of that, of that international market as well. Um, however, um, we've absolutely seen a, a, a major uptick in basically that demand for, you know, store of value in dollars. And we've seen that in particular come from emerging markets. And so we, we've seen growth in emerging markets, Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, other places like this, um, where we've seen, we're seeing just so many startups that are launching things and, and building partnerships with those major companies, major global companies as well that are actually embracing this as a way to settle transactions. So that, that international dimension is very powerful. And I expect that to continue to be the case. I, and this, you know, I'm sure we'll get to this in the conversation, but this ties into like, why should the U.S. government care about dollar stablecoins? Well, it turns out that it makes digital dollars like a powerful export product of the United States, that it, it, it enhances the, the soft power of the country and reinforces the economic interests of households, firms, and the government itself. And so there's a strategic alignment of interests between you know, the proliferation of dollar stablecoins, especially ones that are are well regulated and and you know really try and follow uh, the law and supervise and national economic interest uh, and foreign policy interest as well, which is you know for for some you know controversial, uh, but it is it is a fact. Yeah, and you're right. We will definitely unpack that because I know you probably have a lot more to say on that topic. Um, but first, let's go back to the tech development. Circle just released a new programmable Web3 wallet platform that you believe will help businesses offer digital asset payments to customers. Tell us more about that. Obviously, we're really well known for USDC and, 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 and the stablecoin that we offer. On the other side of that, right, we, we, you know, USDC itself is a protocol, right? It exists as a dollar protocol that any developer can build on and plug into. Like, and that's happened, right? All across DeFi and wallets and custodians and all kinds of different products and services, they integrate to that protocol. And then they know, oh, I have a, a, a safe way for my users to store and transact and settle dollars. So a lot of the success of USDC has really been built on working with developers and working with developers that are, you know, trying to create value and they need, they need a, a, a trusted, you know, kind of uh, stable coin built into that. But we see that we can do a lot more as a company. And, um, and so last year, uh, we did a multi-hundred million dollar acquisition of a company called Saibabo that had really, um, we thought, really outstanding technology for deploying on blockchains, managing and deploying smart contracts, handling like wallets and wallet security and all these things. And we got really excited about this category that was not yet emerged, but I think is now emerging of like Web3 services. And the analogy is, you know, Amazon, you know, built their own e-commerce infrastructure and they said, hey, what if we took the, the infrastructure that was behind that and, and we started to make that available to developers to build on top of? So Web2 developers could like bring online an application really easily. And that gave birth to Amazon Web Services. And so when you look at, if you're a startup, or you're a, a big company or whoever you are, and you're like, I want to build an app that integrates on top of blockchains. I want to not have to worry about managing the infrastructure of that and the security and the operations and the compliance, the really hard problems. And I want to just focus on delivering like a delightful 
end user experience that is safe for the users and, and safe for me as a developer, um, that's a that's a big that's a big need. And when you know we all talk about developers, there's lots of dis- discussion about like developers on blockchains and the developer ecosystems on blockchains, and that's a that's a really important thing. And and we you know as you know like we have USDC is rolling out on six more chains. We could talk about that too. But the the bottom line is the number of developers that are capable of like easily building an app that integrates on blockchains and makes it safe for their users to hold, whether it's an NFT token or a stable coin and make, making a payment. The number of developers that, that can do that today is tiny. There's like 100 million developers in the world that can write software. And there's about a half a million that are, are able to build on blockchains. And if we want to see Web2 go, you know, it, it evolve into this new architecture, right? We have to dramatically change how easy it is for these developers to build, operate, and run these kinds of apps and services. So for us, we see that as a huge opportunity. It's super aligned with what we're doing with stablecoins. Because at the end of the day, if whether it's a, a commerce app or a financial app or a consumer app or whatever it is, like those, all of those apps are going to need to use money. And they're going to need to move money. And we can make it super seamless. And take advantage of breakthroughs that are happening in blockchain infrastructure and EVMs and other abstractions, which we can talk about here as well. We can make that so simple that it just proliferates the number of useful apps. And we want to grow the number of useful apps. And if we grow the number of useful apps and they're plugged into our, into our, into our protocols like USDC, that grows the network and it grows the network utility. And if we can do that, that will generate a lot of value for us. And so. This is a new revenue line. Like we're, we're, we're monetizing it like AWS. It's like pay as you go. It's utility pricing. And like if there's a huge, you know, a hugely successful app, we can generate a lot of revenue. Um, but it's very affordable. Like you can just get in and go and it's truly self service. And so it's actually going back to my own roots. Um, not a lot of people know, but like I started my career building developer platforms, programming languages, some of the most popular web development tools ever in history. I was the creator of back in web 1.0 and web 2.0. And so I, I love, I love these kinds of products. And it's, it's the, I think it's a really important moment. And I think it's, it represents a shift in who circle is as well from sort of the stablecoin issuer to being more of a, a of a, a, a platform oriented business um, in in this whole Web3 space. I imagine it's probably a little bit more fun for you than the regulatory stuff. (laughs) It's just my speculation. Um, (laughs) But I wanted to ask about the blockchains. You're adding six new ones, you said. And is that driven by demand that you're seeing? Like, you know, developers on that side or, or, or DeFi builders are saying, we need this? Or is it you saying, we just want to make sure that if any of these take off, that we're going to be there? Like, how are you making those decisions? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of both. There are obviously like hundreds of blockchains out there, right? Um, and and we're not we're not going to go and 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 launch n- like native USDC on like hundreds of blockchains. There are many of those that are. There's like a lot of dead chains, right? Um, and and you know I'm not going to name names, but like you know there's the, there's there's a there's a you know a long a long list. And there's people like I mean, how many new uh, you know op stack you know, layer twos are launching, like there's all these, right? There's, there's so much proliferation. What's clear to me is that like right now, 
there's still a lot of ongoing innovation happening in, in both layer one and layer two. Given what I've just described in terms of the actual number of apps and the actual number of users of those apps, we're still in like the early stages of the maturation of that. And so, um, but it's very likely that in the coming few years, you're going to see, start to see some like power law curve type of adoption. And you'll see, you know, maybe there'll be five different layer ones and layer twos that, you know, take up, you know, whatever, 80% of the market. Um, but right now there is a lot of innovation and competition. And there's like completely new architectures that are coming out. And there's still really hard problems to solve around privacy, security, scalability, you know, all, all these, there's still hard problems to solve that haven't been solved. We want to be omni-chain. We want to make sure that if there is an infrastructure that has, you know, a, a, a strong technical innovation and has some amount of developer traction, or we believe is going to have developer traction, like, we're gonna we're gonna you know work with that and and do that and so you know a lot of it reflects that and and we're not done right we're gonna continue to be omnichain and and experiment with that as well but at the same time the the other products that we're building right are designed so that you know you could build an app that is multi-chain as well um, and you know so our web three services and smart contract platform and so on will will target you know multiple chains and and then we're also trying to solve interoperability issues as well, which is a huge issue that exists in, in a world where there are multiple layer ones and layer twos, and no one thinks that's going to end. Um, we, we've, we've really had a horrible, horrible way for people to move their, their dollars around, which is these bridges. And you have all these bridges, and the bridges basically, like, you'll lock the USDC and and then wrap it, and then the, there's like a wrapped version of USDC that's moving on these bridges. It's slow. It it exposes these huge honeypots for hackers, and so like many of the highest profile hacks have been of, of bridges, basically, where there's been like you know the developers have a multi sig, and someone gets a key. I mean, it's it's awful, I and mean, we're talking about like a billion dollars, like a, and it's, it's terrible. And USDC is, in fact, the most bridged asset in, in the whole ecosystem. USDC is the most bridged asset. And so we built and launched a, um, a, a cross-chain transfer protocol for USDC that it's called CCTP, basically allows a user or a developer building an app, but just say we'll call it a user, to actually teleport USDC from one chain to another without a bridge without locking these, without any incremental fees. So you're not paying for like a liquidity provider to, to, you know, to make that transfer. And we're able to do that because we are the canonical mint of USDC. And what that means is if I have USDC on, you know, uh, on, on Arbitrum and I want to, you know, send that USDC on Arbitrum to a wallet on base, or optimism or on Ethereum mainnet, like I can teleport it directly and it will burn the USDC on that one side and it will mint the USDC on the other side. So it's faster, safer, and there's no, and there's no capital inefficiency. And so it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge way to provide like safe, interoperable digital dollars. And it is an abstraction that allows end users, like I don't, 
if I'm an end user and like you have a wallet and I have a wallet, I don't really want to care about like what layer one or layer two you're on. I just want to be like, I have USDC, I'm sending you this and you send it back. It should just work and, and, and it should be safe. And that's what this allows. So we're, we're, we're also, in addition to like innovating and bringing USDC to change, we're also a protocol developer and we're building new protocols that make it safer and easier for people to use these digital dollars on these networks as well. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're excited, you know, we, we, you know, we, we launched, um, you know, we launched, you know, these new chains, some of these new chains last week, and we launched more routes as we call them for CCTP as well last week. And so it's all part of just making this the most useful, uh, safest, you know, digital dollar on, on, on blockchain networks. So um, all of that is super interesting. Um, Circle faced an existential moment earlier this year when $3.3 billion of its reserves were locked in Silicon Valley Bank, which then failed. Since that time, USTC has been losing market share against Tether. What has been your strategy to recover from that event? Well, there's a, a bunch of pieces here. I think the first is just to understand how our infrastructure works. And I think one of the key things that we do take a huge amount of pride in is the fact that we have the most transparent disclosures in terms of, of, of our market infrastructure. Um, so we disclose all the banks that we work with. Uh, we disclose the details on every single bond treasury bill that we hold down to the serial number, down to the date. And, and we actually right now have about 94% of the reserves are held in an SEC registered and supervised uh, structure called the Circle Reserve Fund that BlackRock manages. And you can go to, if you search for USDXX, the ticker, you can go and see within that on a daily basis, every single thing there. So you can understand exactly what the safety is of this is. And that is a compliant registered infrastructure. There's no one else that has that in the market. And so we have a very, very high degree of safety and transparency that comes from that. The second piece, though, is sort of just thinking about, you know, what happened. I think there's some pretty dramatic things that happened to the whole industry. And obviously, we were unique in that our own specific exposure in terms of a bank, a large publicly traded bank with $170 billion of assets, you know, uh, over the course of a 48-hour period, went through an extraordinary run. That had nothing to do with crypto. Uh, that that was a run uh, that happened when uh, there were there were uh, essentially disclosures that they had taken huge losses on uh, their own balance sheet, uh, and and Goldman Sachs was unsuccessful raising money for them. Uh, and so I, I I'm happy to kind of take you through kind of you know what what happened there. But that was a shock that you know affected the entire you know, U.S. financial system. And it's still, we still have banks that are failing on a, on a regular basis uh, for, for similar reasons. But, you know, up until the day before the SVB bank failure, they were one of the, you know, very well-rated, A-rated, uh, uh, you know, financial institutions. And so it was a, a true shock to, to uh, other than certain hedge funds who had been shorting them. It was, a, it was a huge shock. The other thing I would say is that, you know, we have always sought to keep up-leveling the market infrastructure that sits underneath USDC. And so that meant, you know, having more and more redundancies in terms of the banks that handle the, the transactions that, that allow USDC to flow. And just to put it in perspective, in, the matter, in a matter of 10 days, 
you saw um, basically three bank failures happen. Two of those banks that failed or were seized were like the critical banking infrastructure for almost every firm in this entire industry. And so you literally had overnight, virtually overnight, you had 5,000 plus companies around the world debanked. Uh, and there had been this growing pressure from U.S. regulators on banks in general, and that, that is ongoing. But you literally had like 5,000 plus companies debanked overnight. But do you mean crypto companies or just? Yeah, digital assets companies. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Crypto and digital assets companies that banked with companies like Silvergate and Signature, right? They were just, boom, like gone. Now, we had been doing a number of things, you know, prior, prior to all this. One was we put in place, you know, we, we created this circle reserve fund, which we did in, in our strategic partnership with BlackRock. And we, were, we, had, we had effectively, by Q1 of this year, we had, um, you know, we had moved uh, over 80% of the reserves into that. And that was the, so within the stablecoin space, for the first time ever, you had an SEC registered and supervised, you know, structure with all the protections that it includes with daily transparency into, into the safety of that. And that's, that's extraordinary. And, and again, this is a level of safety and transparency. Now, we also continue to maintain around 20% in cash so that we always could meet whatever the most extreme amounts of daily liquidity needs that there could be. Now, as you're aware, if you're in the digital asset industry, or you're in the crypto industry, it's not like you can just like go and open bank accounts with whoever you want to open bank accounts with. It's extremely difficult to get banks. And so it's also extremely difficult you know, a company like Circle, who's been compliant from day one, does things the right way, super transparent, has all of this capability in terms of risk management. Like, it's not like we get to choose, hey, JP Morgan, will you hold our reserves? It doesn't work that way. If you're Microsoft, yeah, you can decide like which bank you want to put your, your, your cash assets in, but that freedom doesn't exist. However, we had been making huge strides in, in progressing our ability to use what are often called GSIBs, globally systemically important banks, as the infrastructure behind USDC. And in fact, we had just begun doing that for cash for USDC, literally in the, in the, in the week or two prior to the SVB collapse. And so we were actually very fortunate, even though all this stuff happened, we were very, very fortunate that literally we were able to sweep everything into a, a, the, like the safest GSIB in the world. And you can go and look at our attestations now and you can look and see that, okay, all the cash is with like the safest, you know, globally systemically important cash, dollar cash custodian of the world and in this trusted re reserve fund structure. And so on the other side of this, we literally have the safest, most transparent digital dollar on the internet today. Like there, there isn't something that has that, that level that's there. So in terms of what we're doing about it, we're just continuing to do what we have been doing, which is continue to up level the market infrastructure, to up level the transparency and the like. And the other thing I would say is, you know, the, the debanking that's taken place for this entire industry, that's the, the, the effects of that are still ongoing. I mean, it's become, as you probably are aware from many people that you talk to, it's, it's become a major issue. What we have been doing is we've made a huge investment in basically building a global 
liquidity and settlement network for USDC. We're really excited about the progress we're making. We are bringing online banking partnerships in every major region of the world with high quality banks that will allow for the creation and redemption or the liquidity of USDC in those local markets as well. So you're not dependent on US banks uh, for that. So we're making huge, what I consider to be just like market infrastructure investments. And the only reason we can do all those and that banks will work with us is because we are a compliant, transparent, risk-managed company. Like some of our competitors, no one knows anything about any of the banks and they never have. And it's just a huge mystery. And there's liquidity issues that exist and like it's not clear how you actually redeem and i mean that's like that's terrifying it's like terrifying if we're talking about the future of the financial system you know like like totally shadowy things that no one knows anything about other than you know uh, public pronouncements like that's really tricky so other things though i mean look bottom line is we've been impacted by a perception that was really in the aftermath of this multifaceted banking crisis in the U.S. and the shuttering of banks in the U.S. and a wave of SEC lawsuits against almost every major U.S. crypto company, knock on wood. This this huge set of things that happened over the course of, in a concentrated way, over the course of about eight weeks. And the, 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 the rest of the world's reaction was, it's not safe to be exposed to the United States. It's not safe to have money in an institution that's exposed to the US banking system. It's not safe to be working with firms that are under the supervision of regulators in the United States. It's actually not safe. And so what we have seen is a flight from safety. And that's been pronounced. Like there's been a flight from safety. And in fact, other companies, you know, will tout like we're not exposed to US stuff. And that's not tenable over the long run, right? That is not tenable over the long run. And if, you, if you're up close to these issues, actually, there's tremendous progress being made. The, the Fed actually is coming out with a supervisory framework for, for banks that deal with crypto. There's clear rules that are emerging around stable coins. There's major financial institutions that are deepening what they're doing here. And so the opposite is ultimately true. And I think that that flight to safety, that will ultimately be the case. The other thing to note, though, is it's really important is we also have a cyclical business. When interest rates were zero and there's just massive amounts of capital flowing everywhere, including into crypto, um, that created an environment where, you know, if you had dollars, you could go and, and go after, you know, all kinds of act you know, investment and other activities in the blockchain ecosystem. And so you saw this huge growth um, in, in stable coins. And we benefited from that. Now you've had, you know, these huge increases in, in rates on a, on a sp- at a, in a speed that we just haven't seen in, in decades. And so the inverse is the case, right? If you're sitting on a digital, uh, you know, on a dollar asset and you know you can go and get five and a quarter percent uh, somewhere else. If you are a customer who has access to the U.S. banking system and the TradFi system, you're going to do that. It's just like obvious. And in fact, I have a, I have a chart. Maybe I can send it for your show notes. But um, it, it basically, if you look at effectively like stablecoin supply, where it was in April of 2022, which is when the first rate hike happened, and then rate hikes, 
they're like directly inversely correlated. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're actually in this funny position where Coinbase and Circle have great banking, relatively speaking. And we actually provide the w- a way to like redeem one for one at no cost into banks. And so we have the TradFi layer. And that's like part of why people love USDC and part of why they, they trust this product as well. But that also subjects to being kind of the off-ramp uh, uh, as well. It's like it's harder to off-ramp out of certain other products, but it's actually quite easy to off-ramp through, through USDC. So we've had, we've had that as an, as an impact. But I would say the broader impact is truly macro-cyclical, which is in a high-rate environment. Yes, we're generating significant amounts of revenue, and we just publicly disclosed uh, our, our, our full year last year and our first half you know, revenue and income um, and EBITDA. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's very significant. So despite our circulation issues, like we're seeing very high year over year growth, um, you know, and, and cash flow as well. Um, but it is, it is this macro cyclical piece. And so I think I'm taking a long-term view on this, which is build the best infrastructure, build the most compliant regulated infrastructure, build the best banking infrastructure, the most transparency, do things the right way make it work, make it work for any company, any fintech, any FI, make that work, build great things for developers. And like the rest will follow. And like well, the macro cyclical piece is going to be there uh, as interest rates come down, you know, you get to a neutral interest rate environment. And then the, the kind of the, the, what people do with their dollars starts to shift. It's, it's worth noting, like since interest rates started going up, banks have lost a trillion dollars of deposits. You can look at the chart. That's this Federal Reserve data, the FRED database. You can look it up from April of last year till now. Banks have lost a trillion dollars of deposits. Money market funds have gained about $800 billion. And so like, it's the same phenomenon that's at work there uh, as well. Yeah. So in a moment, we're going to look at um, how regulation will impact Circle and also the introduction of a stablecoin by PayPal. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. The game has changed. The Google Cloud Oracle, built for Layer 0, is now securing every Layer 0 message by default. Their custom end-to-end solution sets itself up to bring its world-class security to Web3 and establish itself as the HTTPS within Layer 0 messaging. Visit LayerZero.network to learn more. Toku makes managing global token compensation and incentive awards simple. Are you designing your token compensation plan and grant templates with multiple law firms? Are you managing cliffs, vesting, and taxable events in a spreadsheet? Are you distributing tokens to your team manually? With Toku, you get unmatched legal and tax tech support to grant and administer your global team's tokens. Easy-to-use token grant award templates, vesting tracking via online dashboard, tax withholding integration with payroll, automated distributions, great employee experience. Make it simple with Toku. Learn more at toku.com unchained. Join over 80 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, trade, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere and get rewarded at every step. Up to 5% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions, and zero annual fees. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first seven days. 
Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code Laura. Link in the description. Arbitrum stands at the forefront of innovation as the premier suite of Layer 2 scaling solutions, bringing you lightning-fast transactions at a fraction of the cost, all with security rooted on Ethereum. From DeFi to gaming, Arbitrum 1 plus Nova is home to over 500 projects. And with the recent launch of Orbit, Arbitrum welcomes you to build your very own tailor-made Layer 3, or as the Arbitrum ecosystem calls it, an Orbit chain, directly on the Arbitrum tech stack. Designed with you in mind, Arbitrum empowers you to explore and build without compromise. Propel your project and community forward by visiting Arbitrum.io today. Back to my conversation with Jeremy. PayPal recently introduced a stablecoin, and they are a behemoth in terms of payments. How does Circle intend to compete there? I'd say a few things. I think, first of all, you know, as the, the day they launched, I was, uh, I think, quite complimentary and congratulatory to, to PayPal and Paxos because um, it's, it's a good partnership for Paxos. And, and I think it's, it's wonderful to see a major mainstream payment company embrace dollar stablecoins. Um, and so we're, we're excited about that just from the perspective of, you know, I think this is a very clear indicator that there's enough regulatory clarity in the world around stablecoins that, you know, major, major companies are, are getting into this market. And as that, as regulation comes into place, that's exactly what you want to see. You want to see an open, free, competitive market. And as that, as that regulation, you know, becomes available, there's a, a baseline of safety that's there as well for the market that everyone can depend on. And you'll see, yeah, you'll see a lot more competition. So we fully expect to see more competition, not less competition, not just in the U.S., but around the world, because stablecoin laws are, are dropping everywhere. But so first of all, you know, I think that's just from an overall perspective, a positive thing. Now, in terms of how do we compete, I focus, you know, less on sort of the competitor and more on what are the things that that we do that we think are really valuable and important that people will depend on. And I think, um, you know, part of what has made USDC so successful is that we're a kind of market neutral infrastructure company, right? We're not competing for merchants. We're not competing for retail users. Um, we don't have a, a, a consumer wallet. We are, you know, purely a market neutral infrastructure company. And we think about USDC as like a, a, a dollar utility for the, for the internet. And we want to work with, you know, tons of different companies to build on top of that. And, and I think that makes us unique. I think, uh, you know, um, Pay- PayPal has a lot of great partners as well, but they have, you know, a franchise. Um, they have a franchise, you know, charging, you know, fees to merchants to collect payments using credit cards. Um, and they have a, a franchise of end users. And so, you know, there, um, there are lots of people who, you know, would view that as competitive. And, you know, we've been able to build great partnerships with lots of firms who might view each other as competitive, right? Robinhood and Coinbase probably look at each other as competitive. You know, we have a partnership with Block. We have a partnership with Stripe. We have partnerships with Visa and MasterCard, with MoneyGram, with a lot of different firms that are depending on and using USDC in different ways. And it's, I think, our, our market neutral position that is really important. Um, so I, I, I think that's going to continue to be important as, as this grows. And what's exciting to me when I look at where, like where we were a few years ago compared to where we are now, it's, 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 it's obviously enormously different. 
But even just like 12 months ago, the range of mainstream companies that are engaging on this and who are working on things with, with USDC, it's totally night and day. And so I'm really excited. I, I'm really excited as we launch partnerships in the coming quarters because you know, we're, we're, we're just sort of seeing like the Mercado Libre example is just is a great one. That's like, that's a company with 200 million users. PayPal has however, however 100 million. Coinbase, a great partner of ours, has 100 million. USDC supported in the Binance wallet. They have 100 million users, right? So there's, you know, we have reach and we're continuing to add great, great partners that have reach. And that's what's important. How, what's the reach that's there? And, um, and then our strategy is really different. Like we're building developer platforms. We're building infrastructure platforms. We're building protocol layers. And that's, that's how we want to grow this. Um, and, uh, so we feel, you know, we feel good about our position. We think we can, we can continue to, to be a, a very meaningful you know, part of the market, but we welcome the competition as well. All right, let's finally turn to regulation. In late July, a stablecoin bill that many had anticipated would receive bipartisan support instead moved out of committee in the House, supported only by Republicans. Around that time, you made some remarks to the House Financial Services Committee on ways that you thought this bill could be improved. Before we get to your specific suggestions, tell us what you like about the bill. So, I mean, I, I think a couple things. The f- first is, you know, the bill did move out of committee with bipartisan support. It, it wasn't broad based. Oh. It was, there was, it was definitely with bipartisan support, but not, not, you know, it didn't have, um, ranking member waters, uh, on board, right? There were, there were, um, you know, five Democrats that voted alongside the Republicans, um, to, oh, right. to move yes. it out of committee. I, I think, um, the, the bill accomplishes a lot and, you know, my, my view, I'm very up close to the issues here and very up close to the politics here as well, which is that what's really interesting is that this is a, this is a piece of legislation that everyone wants to get done. The Fed wants it. Treasury wants it. Congress wants it. The White House wants it. It's a priority that has been set by the highest levels of the administration that we need to have dollar stablecoin regulation in the United States. So it is a national priority and people are working hard to get that done. And the U.S., just to remind people, the U.S. led the way globally to go to the G20 and say, everyone here, everybody at this table, all of you guys and gals, all of you nations at the table, you need to have stablecoin regulation in place. And they all agreed, we're all going to put stablecoin regulation in place. They agreed on the principles of it. And then they went off to their governments to say, okay, let's go get it done. Hong Kong's getting it done. Singapore's getting it done. Japan's already got it done. The EU's already got it done. The UK is about to get it done. It's getting done. So people are doing what they said they do. The US has a little bit of a longer legislative process, but Everyone wants to get it done, which is great. So the probability of there being stablecoin regulation is high. The specific bill that came out of committee, I don't think is the bill that will be signed into law uh, because there are key things that are still important to the administration and to the Fed that just haven't quite been resolved. And so a lot of this has to do with how much of a role does the Federal Reserve play in 
not just setting the standards. So right now, the bill that went out of committee, basically the Fed sets the floor. They say, here's all of the requirements and they define that. But I think there's a debate over like, does the Fed get to veto who gets a stablecoin license? Uh, or does the Fed have any specific supervision if it's a state like New York State issues a stablecoin charter to someone? Does the Fed have any joint or dual supervisory role? It's kind of technocratic, but it's actually really important stuff that has to do with states' rights and federal and, and, and federal rights and you know the balance of power and 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 the like. But it's like down to those kinds of issues. But overall, what I like about it, to get back to your question, is it creates a clear pathway for bank and non-bank stablecoin issuers. It creates a role for um, the states and the federal government. It sets a very clear and very high bar on the prudential supervisory requirements. It's very specific about reserves, transparency, risk management, like all the things that are needed. And it effectively creates legal certainty that a dollar stablecoin is a part of the global financial system. It is a part of the U.S. dollar financial system, which will mean that accountants know how to deal with this, whether you're a public company or a private company, that financial institutions will be able to hold it just like cash or collateral. And, and so it, it will, it will unlock like massive mainstream usage of this, um, as that happens. Uh, so there's a lot to like about it. Um, and, um, and I think, you know, there's, you know, it'd be interesting to see, you know, we're just getting back into, into the congressional session. It'll be interesting to see, um, how this moves in the Senate and, uh, and, and, and as well through the house. But, um, we, um, we remain, uh, we remain optimistic that the United States is going to ultimately do the right thing and preserve and protect the interests of the dollar on the internet. And, and as I've said many times, like, uh, the future of currency competition is technological competition, and it's technology on the internet that is driving that. And it's a question of, are you going to unleash open networks, free market competition, private sector innovation, private sector technical innovation, which is what the United States has historically done to compete. And that's why the American internet and technology universe is so strong. And they have to make that choice. Do you want to compete that way or uh, or follow, you know, the way of of authoritarian regimes that are trying to build monopolistic systems over money. Yeah, one thing that I um, noticed, you know, amongst your suggestions that especially piqued my interest was you made the request to revise the bill um, so that stablecoin issuers be allowed to access Federal Reserve account services. And I'm sure your experience with SVB informed that request. What's the reception been like to this idea? So actually, for years. Well, prior to the the most recent um, banking crisis, and really a fundamental premise of the company when we founded it ten years ago is that we need to move to a full reserve banking system, and I think that's sort of implicit in 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 some of the economic philosophy that undergirds even things like Bitcoin. Like Austrian economic philosophy is, is sort of you can't you know the sort of full reserve you can't you can't fractionally reserve Bitcoin. I mean, you could do it like uh, you know maybe Sam Bankman Fried did it. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, nobody but, but, do that, please. Yeah, if, you have, if, you're, if, if, if you have a database and you're telling people you have an IOU and you, you, you can do that, but, but at a, at a, at a physical level, right. Bitcoin can't be fractionally reserved. Right. And so the, but the idea of a full reserve banking system is something that I've been passionate about for a very long time. And, and there's a similar economic philosophy that emerged after the great depression 
when bank failures cascaded across the United States, there was a big debate about, well, how do you deal with this? The, these, these banks that were all going under. And there, there were two options that were very seriously discussed. One is called the Chicago Plan. And that was a group of prominent economists, uh, Irving Fisher out of Chicago School, but, but uh, many, many others that basically said, we need to have a separation between the, the payment uh, utility of, of money and lending. And we need to have full reserve money. Um, and so you'd, you'd still have, it's still sovereign money, meaning it's still, it's still like a government obligation, but it's fully reserved. And, and banks can't create money themselves. They can't fractionally reserve. They can lend, but only with money that's fully reserved. And that was a big argument that, and the argument was that that would, that would result in a safer financial system where there's less inherent risk and less tendency to boom and bust and would likely lead to fewer recessions. Well, there was another view, which was actually the view of the banks, which was, no, 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 no. We want to be able to do fractional reserve, but let's just create an insurance pool. And we'll have an insurance pool, and the insurance pool will basically, we'll all chip in insurance, and if one of us fails, then we can draw on their insurance and pay for the, for the failures. But we get to do this risk-taking stuff. And that was the formation of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, the FDIC. So I think commercial interest won out then, and that's been revisited over and over throughout time when the savings and loan crisis happened in the 1980s, again, after the financial crisis after 2008. That's when I took a real interest in all of this is what got me into crypto was, how does this fractional reserve banking system really work? How, what is central bank money? How can we improve on this? That's what got me in all of this before I even knew about Bitcoin. It was sort of, I was interested in all of this. So I've always wanted there to be a model for full reserve dollars. And I believe that if you have the technological superpowers of blockchains and the internet, and you have this incredible programmable money that moves at the velocity and speed and efficiency of the internet, that the ideal underlying basis for that should be a full, full reserve money. And that um, it should either be in, in like, it should be government obligation money. So it should be either like cash held at the Fed or you know, kind of um, short-term government obligations like treasury bills. And that if you had that, then everyone would know this is as close to cash as possible. This is like the safest thing as possible. And they'd be willing to use it very, very broadly as a medium of exchange. And that's really what we strive to. And we're really close to that. The only thing is right now, the cash piece of what we have, we, we, have, we have to hold it in commercial banks. And I've always been nervous about that. And that turned out, to be something to be nervous about. Um, and so now, you know, the, 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 we are fortunate in that we're holding the cash almost entirely with, you know, the, you know, one of the very safest globally systemically important banks in the world, which means it kind of has a government backstop behind it. So we, we have still a very safe place, but I do think the, the, the proper design on digital dollars and private sector intermediated digital dollars, which is what we're talking about here is something where you can take advantage of that central bank facility. But but are you seeing that people on Capitol Hill like agree that that would be a good step and something to put in this bill or I don't think we're going to see that in this bill. I think the bank lobby is um quite seriously opposed to it. And so I don't I don't think we'll see that uh in, in this bill. Um I think, you know, the reserve requirements in terms of the assets I think go a long way to ensuring that the reserve assets can be extraordinarily safe. 
and you can kind of get to like 98% of the safety that you'd have. Um, and, and so, um, that, that may be, uh, you know, a fight for another day. Another suggestion you made was for the bill to define what would be a legitimate U.S. dollar stablecoin versus what you called counterfeit ones. And honestly, some of your comments earlier where it felt like you were throwing shade at Tether without naming them, um, maybe were what you were thinking about when you were uh, talking about these quote unquote counterfeit dollars. So how do you think this like legitimate U.S. dollar stablecoin, what, what definition would you like to see there? Well, I mean, I think if... Um, you know, to, to, to quote and, and literally quote Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, is like, you know, his, his view is that stable coins are dollar money creation. And that is, that is the responsibility of the federal government to define what is legitimate dollar money creation, what is actually considered a dollar instrument in the global financial system. And I think, um, you know, in particular, if it's something that is, uh, determined to be equivalent to cash, that from an accounting perspective, from a balance sheet perspective, that everyone understands that way, there ought to be a very, very high bar. And if you're out there saying you're a dollar and you're not meeting the standards and requirements of the law to be a digital dollar, then you shouldn't be able to be out there parading as one. And so that's, that's what I think more or less the view. Um, and so my own view is that there need to be consistent, prudential standards for these fiat stablecoins around the world. And I think you're seeing that. You're seeing that it's basically the central banks in all of these major G20 jurisdictions. They're basically all coming to the same conclusion. And the law is, is basically quite similar in all of these places. And so I think over time, we, we, we will certainly be in a world where if you're, if you're, you know, offering a digital currency, a fiat digital currency, right, you're going to have to be under this kind of robust regulatory regime or you're not, you're not going to be able to be used. So, I mean, I, I think that, um, that's sort of the direction of travel, uh, that's happening right now. And it will take, you know, it'll take two or three years to, to play out, but it seems pretty clear. So as you've alluded to earlier in the conversation, there are all these discussions happening around the world and they're different in different places, um, partially, you know, an analogy similar to what we saw with like, for instance, Blockbuster or what, um, you know, many of these previous like Kodak, like there's all these previous companies we've seen with the internet that just, they were the dominant, you know, force in that industry. And because the upstarts had more motivation to, find use in this new technology, they were able to take them out and pretty quickly, frankly. Um, unfortunately, you know, I hate to say it because I know a lot of lawmakers and regulators listen to the show, but um, sometimes when I'm covering this space, I feel like the same thing is happening with the U.S. government and the U.S. dollar. Hopefully I'm wrong about that. But, you know, obviously you are interfacing with these different jurisdictions. And one probably really notable country that has focused on blockchain technology and on central bank digital currency is China. Um, they've rolled out its digital yuan fairly quickly. And I just wondered what your thoughts were as you're seeing the contrast between these two governments and how they approach stablecoins and central bank digital currencies. I, I think um, China does not have a specific regulatory position on stablecoins. Um, so th th that, that is still... They have not, they're not 
to my knowledge, working on specific new rules for stablecoin issuers in China. However, I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen. I think that um, you know, if you look at the the, the state of play, um, the priority in most jurisdictions um, from the government is get stablecoin regulations in place as quickly as possible. And so, you know, stablecoin rules for euro stablecoins are, are, are becoming model law, and that'll be years before there's a digital euro from the ECB. Um, stablecoin rules in Japan have been effective since this June. And that'll be, you know, it's not even clear that there'll ever be a, a CBDC in Japan. And so the priority, including in the United States, I mean, the, 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 the Fed has made it clear we are not working on a CBDC. And, and so the, the priority is there is private sector digital currency initiatives. There needs to be safeguards and rules, and there needs to be a, a, a fair market for competition with, with technology, innovators, banks, non-banks, et cetera. And like, that's the priority um, because that is the here and now. And so I think as that happens, as you know, every major jurisdiction in the world is supervising um, private sector innovation in the space, I think China will have no choice other than to also unleash their own creative, technological, competitive capabilities. Now, it may be that uh, an RMB stablecoin that's privately intermediated could actually be a more attractive instrument to businesses and others around the world than the actual CBDC. Because you kind of want an air gap between you and, and the Chinese government. And, and so I think, you know, that, that's a real question. You know, I, I think do, does, does, a, does a big corporation that's settling transactions uh, cross-border with China, do, do they want the, the, the government's systems reaching into their own technology environment? Probably not. Um, and so private intermediation, it could be backed by a central bank digital currency. And that's kind of where I think over the very long run in the United States, we'll, we'll see. We'll see upgrades to the wholesale kind of core technology infrastructure of, of the central bank. And then private intermediation will integrate um, to that. But it'll principally be kind of stable coins and, and the kind of rapid, constant innovation cycle that comes with open infrastructure and, and technology innovation that will kind of be what is quote unquote retail, what's touching businesses and end users directly. And I think my own belief is that something like that will, will, will probably emerge for China as well in the future. And, and do you think that in the US, those developments will happen quickly enough that, um, the, you know, the global reserve currency status of the US dollar will remain in place? Well, I think the US needs to be aggressively taking action right now um, and uh, unleashing competitive digital dollars on the internet is one of the best things that the US could be doing right now. Uh, and I, I, I certainly have made that case in testimony and I make that case in person to a lot of people in Washington. But it, it, it's, it's a very clear thing that can be done because um, then it's about, you know, you're, you're fighting for the hearts and minds of users in the world, businesses, households, others that are making decisions as they turn on their computer or their smartphone. Um, and, uh, and, and I think the United States, I think the dollar remains the most 
the most resilient, most attractive reserve currency in the world. It remains the safest uh, uh, asset in the world. And I think that that can continue, that can certainly continue if the United States is willing to, um, you know, kind of get behind kind of some of these transformations that are needed in the safety of the dollar and the technological competitiveness of the dollar. So aside from the suggestions that you made to the House bill on stablecoins earlier, are there any aspects of regulation, stablecoin regulation from other jurisdictions that you would like to see adopted in the U.S.? Well, so there, there are um, what I'm seeing in some places are proposals to uh, to have stablecoin issuers have direct access to central bank clearing facilities. So, for example, I think that would be, as I've already recommended in the U.S., I think that would be, you know, a a uh, a, a positive, uh, you know, a positive step. I think, um, you know, one one of the things uh, that you're seeing as well is, and this is very new, you know, there there are, there are provisions in Japan, for example that are dealing with um, effectively various forms of reciprocity with kind of foreign issued stable coins. And I think that's really important as well, is that um, that we can get to kind of like for like treatment so that if uh, if I'm a business or a, uh, I'm in the capital markets in Japan, that the regulators in Japan will acknowledge a something like USDC as an instrument in their markets um, so long as the the there's regulatory equivalence in terms of the various safeguards that need to be in place. So I think that's something that we're seeing initial um, ideas around from other jurisdictions. That's not explicitly addressed in the U.S. stablecoin legislation right now, um, um, and and it's a hard issue. But it will and it will iter- there'll be iteration around this. But you know ultimately because these are digital assets that this move on the internet and can show up in any digital wallet. It's just, you know, where are the private keys? Who has them? You know, I think the cross-jurisdictional issues are, are one, is, is an issue that, that has to be, you know, um, considered. And, and I'd like to see that considered more here in the U.S. You've tweeted that crypto has the tools to unlock better KYC or know your customer processes for dealing with things like anti-money laundering. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean... Uh, like take take a, a, as an example, wh- what was it? Uh, there was just a a huge breach of um, every you know the, the the company that was involved in in safeguarding the customer information associated with the uh, I don't know if it was the FTX bankruptcy or the BlockFi bankruptcy. Like that was compromised, and all the KYC information was sort of made available publicly. Right. Well, well, how does that happen? Well, right now, if you're a financial institution, the way that the AML rules work and the way that the KYC rules work is that um, if you're interacting, you, you, the financial institution, are interacting with another financial institution, you actually have to you have to exchange the PI, the personal information of your customers, whether it's a person or a business. You have to exchange that information. And so all of these different you know financial institutions, whether they're a startup fintech or a giant bank or uh, you know a broker dealer or any any market participant you have this like this all this like vast amounts of proliferation of your personal information and so your PII is being broadcast over and over and over and, and it's basically showing up in these honeypots everywhere and so you know yes there are like you know SOC standards and security standards and safeguarding standards but at the end of the day you as a person are having your personal information just blasted out everywhere. Well, crypto 
is, I mean, obviously like crypto is a loaded word, but it's cryptography and, and there's like innovations in cryptography that are constantly happening that allow for proofs without actually having to share the information. So zero knowledge proofs are like the most commonly referred to uh, way to do that. But there's other types of cryptographic proofs where you can have a proof that shows up as like a, a, a certificate. It's a provable certificate that is like a credential. That credential then can be shown to someone and that relying party can say, oh, you have a KYC credential. And that KYC credential was issued by like a legitimate firm that has, that has, has compliance with certain rigorous standards of knowing who their users are. And I'm able to rely on that. And I don't need you to give me all the person's information. And so there's a way to basically make using cryptographic proofs, using digital credentials, these cryptographic credentials to allow people to more safely interact without giving up their private information. And it allows for things like selective disclosure as well, which is, you know, the, the most common example being, you know, uh, if, 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 if my daughter walks into a bar, uh, why is it that she has to legally give the bartender her address and her name? Like, why? That doesn't make any sense, right? So why can't we just prove that we're of age? Why can't we present a credential from a digital wallet that proves that I'm of a certain age? Uh, and, and I'm, I've biometrically proven that I'm actually the, the, the holder of that. And so all this is crypto, right? Crypto. And, and, and so I'm really excited about basically various types of the use of um, cryptographic credentials, NFTs, zero knowledge proofs, this whole kind of collection of technologies that are totally becoming mainstream or have the potential to become mainstream. We can do a better job at, at proving identity without giving up our privacy. So we can have privacy preservation and proof of identity. And we can even have ways that financial institutions can exchange proofs without having to create these huge honeypots as well. So that will require that, say, the U.S. Treasury Department that sets the rules for, you know, kind of anti-money laundering policy for, for financial institutions or the global body, the, the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, that sets the standards for like what they require, you know, it's sort of consortium of all the governments decide, like, you do need to say, yeah, we're going to, we want to enable safer, privacy preserving, but still very rock solid, you know, identity checks. And so there's a way to do it and leverage crypto to solve those problems. All right. Well, final question. Uh, You have made a number of points throughout the show about, you know, what you'd like to see from U.S. regulation. Um, But I just thought I would, you know, give you one last opportunity if there's any message specifically that you'd like to send to regulators and lawmakers, what would that be? Look, I I think there's a couple things. I think I I will, um, I'll be a little bit of a broken record on the, on the stablecoin issue, which is just that we have a moment. It's a here and now moment. There's a dollar competitiveness issue. There's a national competitiveness issue. There's a industry and market competitiveness issue. And while it's very easy to look at the people who've committed frauds or the, or the, or the companies that have run Ponzi schemes or the people who've, you know, been bad actors and say it's all crap, that is just not the case. And so we, we, we're right, we're right on the cusp of, I think, a very strong framework that would be very powerful for the, for the U.S., the U.S. dollar, for industry, competitiveness, et cetera. So that I feel strongly about. The other thing I would say is that 
there, there really tends to be, and this isn't just in the United States, but it's everywhere in the world. Blockchain technology is colored through the lens as a financial technology. And we, I, I think it's really important that policymakers understand that we're talking about general purpose internet infrastructure, general purpose internet computing infrastructure, data infrastructure. It's a really, really important general purpose infrastructure that's important to a huge array of industries and categories. And so how we treat that infrastructure, it needs to be independent of just saying this is a financial regulatory matter because it's actually not. It's, it's really about a next layer of the internet and, and getting that right. And so it's, I, I find sometimes that the policies that are being considered are kind of, they're, they're, they're stovepiping everything or they're kind of, kind of marshaling everything into a financial regulatory lens. That is not a good position. I don't think it's, it's, it's accurate. And so I think it, it really just requires, you know, more and more understanding. Um, and so I, I would encourage policymakers and their staff to, to really get a better understanding of, let's just call it the computer science of this network technology and, and what that is. Um, because that's, um, that's really where, you know, so much value will come. And it's not just because someone's got an airdropped token or whatever the, the, the thing that, that, that people, you know, find, you know, problematic uh, is. All right. Well, Jeremy, this has been such a pleasure. Um, where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, sure. Well, um, me personally, I'm Jer Lair on Twitter and circle.com. If you want to learn about what we do at Circle. Perfect. It's been a pleasure having you on Unchained. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Jeremy and the latest developments on USDC and Circle, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Kevin Fuchs, Matt Pilchard, Juan Aranovich, Sam Sriram, Megan Gavis, Jenny Hogan, Leandro Camino, Shashank, and Marco Curia. Thanks for listening. Unchained is now a part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. For the latest in digital assets, check out Markets Daily, seven days a week, with new host Noel Acheson. Follow the Coindesk Podcast Network for some of the best shows in crypto.